Hello and welcome to the Tech Narratives Podcast. My name is Ian Dawson. This is episode 76, the episode for Thursday, October 12th. First off, my apologies that yesterday I accidentally uploaded episode 74 again originally. I fixed that problem this morning, but if you went to listen to episode 75 and found yourself listening to what sounded like a very familiar episode 74, uh, I apologize for that, but 75 should be available now in your podcast app as well. Um, But this is a new episode for Thursday, and hopefully we won't have those issues again today. Uh, I have nine items that I'm going to run you through that I've written about on the site today, and then five items in the roundup at the end. First off on the items from the site, uh, I'm linking here to a piece from Variety, but this was widely covered uh, last night. This is uh, the launch of Movies Anywhere, which is an evolution of what started out as a Disney service called Disney Movies Anywhere, And it's a digital locker service. In other words, it's a situation where if you buy a movie through, say, iTunes or Google Play or Amazon Video, uh, you can now kind of have a central location where you can see all the movies that you've bought from different places. Until now, that was a Disney-only service, which meant it had limited utility. Uh, but it now includes several other studios. So Sony's in there now, Warner Brothers is in there, 21st Century Fox is in there, and Universal's in there, which means you know five big studios all banding together. And this is now a much more useful service. Uh, Disney's had its own effort, as I say, out there for a while, which was of limited utility because it was one studio. At the same time, there was Ultraviolet, a competing platform, which was of limited utility because it didn't include Disney. So this doesn't solve the whole problem, but it at least makes it much more compelling. I set this up for myself earlier this morning, and it was great to see movies that I bought ages ago but had forgotten about on Amazon Video and Google Play, respectively, suddenly show up together with movies I've bought more recently from iTunes in one place. And so it's a, it's a good offering, a sign that this whole digital locker concept might finally have some legs. Number two, a couple of stories here. Actually, I started out writing about one of them this morning, and there was another story that came out this afternoon. Uh, the main story that I wrote about this morning was that small cable firms, as part of a, a trade group uh, that represents 750 of them, uh, say that Comcast has been pressuring them not to offer small TV bundles, which exclude regional sports networks owned by the Comcast Corporation. Of course, Comcast owns NBC Universal, a whole number of cable and broadcast channels and so on. Uh, but among the channels that Comcast as a company owns are those regional sports networks. And despite the fact that Comcast is itself a pay TV provider, this is a different part of Comcast putting pressure on these smaller cable operators saying you have to include our uh, regional sports networks in your most basic packages uh, once those packages get a certain amount of penetration of your base. And so those companies complaining about that. At the same time, Viacom is complaining that Charter has been trying to block Viacom from offering its own sort of bundle of channels after Charter dropped the Viacom channels from some of its basic tiers. So it's a problem that goes both ways here uh, with each player trying to have things to some extent their own way. But it's clear that some of the big companies are putting a lot of pressure on some of the smaller companies and other players in the ecosystem around this sort of creation of skinny bundles uh, and thereby trying to preserve what has for a long time worked very well, which is this massive bundle, lots of channels for sort of 80 to $100 a month. That seems to be going away and the cable companies are doing everything they possibly can to resist that, as are, for that matter, some of the cable networks. Number three, Reuters reports that Waymo tried to settle its Uber court case, uh, but in return wanted a billion dollars and a public apology from Uber, which neither of which seems particularly likely to be forthcoming from Uber and which Uber apparently pretty quickly dismissed. Uh, That's a sign that Waymo doesn't really care about settling the case, that it would be quite happy for it to carry on. It's a nice distraction. 
potentially embarrassing for Uber as well. Uh, Waymo, for its part, uh, gets to learn lots of interesting things about how Uber uh, is working around self-driving cars and so on uh, and has relatively little to lose itself. All of this makes it likely the court case continues. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I've, as I've said before, Waymo is not on particularly strong ground here. Uh, because it still hasn't demonstrated that Uber itself did anything wrong, only that Anthony Lewandowski, the uh, engineer who left Waymo to go work for Uber, um, that he did something wrong. So interesting to kind of see that work its way through. Number four, another Google story, or another Alphabet story, this time about Google. Uh, Google has launched a billion-dollar philanthropic effort over the next five years to try to mitigate some of the effects of uh, technology on the work and jobs and so on. So as technology works its way through the economy, it's making certain jobs obsolete. It mean, means that certain jobs have to be done in new ways for which people who have those jobs may not be well qualified and it might lead to unemployment. And so Google being well aware of that has started this uh, effort to give money to various organizations that are helping people work through that transition. Uh, so mostly focused on education, given that our education system was designed over 100 years ago for uh, training good factory workers. It's really not well suited on the whole to training people for the jobs they'll actually have going forward. So good to see Google doing this. Obviously, it's not purely altruistic on Google's part. Google's had a lot of flack recently from various corners. And so it's a good PR effort, among other things. But it's clearly, clearly also taking some responsibility for some of these technological changes, which itself has sparked in some cases. Uh, number five, Google and Target have announced nationwide voice shopping through Google Home. They've had a little trial going in a couple of parts of the country for a while now, but now it'll be across the US. Uh, CNBC has the story here. And this is the second of these partnerships. Walmart was the first big partner. There are some other smaller partners as well, I believe. Uh, but both these companies obviously have a common enemy in Amazon. And, and this really feels like yet another front in the escalating war between Google and Amazon, which now has a lot of different parts to it, and which we've seen get increasingly nasty recently. Um, but obviously Google... Uh, doesn't have a very well-evolved shopping service of its own. Conversely, Target and Walmart don't have voice speakers of their own. So there's sort of a good win-win here for these companies. But Google clearly looking for new revenue streams, uh, interesting ways to monetize that whole home speaker and home assistant space, which doesn't lend itself super well to the advertising business models that form the vast majority of Google's business today, and which it said it wants to have as the main monetization method for Google Home and Google Assistant. Number six, Sensor Tower, uh, which is an app analytics company with a funny name, um, has reported that there are uh, over 3 million downloads so far of apps on the iOS app store that require ARKit, um, which is the augmented reality tool set that Apple released as part of iOS 11 for developers to build augmented reality apps. Uh, it's important to be clear about the definition here. This is only apps that require ARKit. So there are really two categories of ARKit-based apps on the App Store today. A lot of them are existing apps which have kind of jumped on the ARKit bandwagon, added some sort of augmented reality features to an existing app, which does not itself require ARKit. This is specifically limited to those apps that require ARKit. In other words, have been built basically from scratch around ARKit and that don't function unless your phone uh, supports ARKit. So important to be clear about the definition there. But 3 million downloads, not a ton. Um, and over half the downloads and nearly two-thirds of the revenue have come from games. About a third of the apps in this category are games, so they're being disproportionately downloaded and even more disproportionately monetized than some of the other apps in this category. 
Um, but it's not a large number, as I say. And, and in general, I've been surprised by how muted the AR kit-based apps have been in the App Store so far. There hasn't been the gold rush that I was expecting. Far fewer big apps and really interesting-looking apps uh, being built on this platform so far than I was expecting, and certainly relative to all the fuss Apple made ahead of the launch. So I think there's still some stuff to come later this fall. Things like Pokemon Go and other stuff that have been dem- demoed at Apple events that haven't actually launched yet should still be coming. Uh, so, But this is going to be more of a slow burn than I think I and a lot of other people were expecting. Number seven, story that sort of emerged over the last 24 hours or so around Twitter, uh, linking here to a story from TechCrunch, but it's been well covered by other publications as well. Uh, This is about uh, an actress called Rose McGowan, who's got quite a profile on Twitter and uh, who was temporarily suspended by Twitter over a breach of its terms and conditions um, and made a bit of a fuss about that. And there was a subsequent sort of media outcry and her account was eventually reinstated. Technically, Twitter says she did violate its terms and conditions by posting somebody's private phone number as part of a series of tweets about Harvey Weinstein and the uh, ongoing allegations about his bad behavior towards women. Um, The irony being, of course, that she was speaking out against all of this. And at the same time, Twitter does a terrible job of policing real abuse on the platform against women. Uh, so this real inconsistency where people engaging in pretty innocuous behavior get banned while people engaging in really nasty, racist, sexist and other abuse um, basically get to continue doing what they're doing on the platform. So Twitter really needs to both get better and more consistent this stuff and be more transparent about what it's doing here and really fix this issue, which continues to be a huge issue for Twitter overall. Number eight, uh, I've got a trio of Facebook stories that have kind of bundled together here. Firstly, Shel Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, did an interview this morning with Axios um, in DC while she's there for various meetings and talked about the Russian ad situation. Not a ton of new detail coming out of this. The main thing being that Facebook is sharing all the ads and some other related information with Congress, which in turn may end up sharing those with the public. So we should finally get some real disclosure around all of that. Um, She also talked about this whole idea of Facebook as a media company, and I I dived into this in depth in my piece today, so I won't go into it in detail here, but I continue to think this is overblown by, ironically, media organizations, which have a somewhat tense and conflicted relationship with Facebook. Secondly, Facebook said that it is seeing good results from its uh, fact-checking operations, where it's working with third parties like Snopes uh, to debunk certain articles. It says once it appends that sort of flag to an article, it sees sharing and viewing going way down. The problem is it still takes about three days on average for that to actually happen, which means that uh, it's... that it. Uh, Uh, often most of the viewing has happened by the time that the flag goes up. So it's sharing this data with the fact-checking organizations as a way to say, hey, guys, can you do this a bit faster because it's effective, but it'll be far more effective if we can get it up quicker. The problem is neither Facebook nor anybody else is really providing any additional resources around all of this. Uh, So it's not clear how these organizations will work faster, get more done, cover more ground. Uh, So it's effective in principle, but not really in practice at the moment. And then lastly, Facebook pulled a bunch of data uh, from its site and other tools, which had been used to do analysis of the Russian stuff uh, by various uh, researchers. Uh, And the Washington Post talks about this being taken down. Facebook said it was accidental that the data was available in the first place. It was a bug, which has now been squashed. But it's just another example of the way Facebook seemed to be very intent on controlling the flow of information around all of this, disclosing as little as possible in many ways, which I think is doing it a disservice from a PR perspective. I think it'd be much better to be more transparent about all this stuff, get all the news and information out there, let people do the analysis on it. If there is any bad news, it will come out eventually, but this way it all comes out at once uh, and it can move on rather than having this very slow trickle, which uh, is not doing Facebook any good, frankly, at the moment. 
And then lastly, number nine, just a quick item here, Magic Leap, the secretive stealth AR company based out of Florida, has, is in the process of finalizing a round of funding, which could be worth as much as a billion dollars at a 17% premium to its last funding round. Um, that's a lot of new money for a, a company like Magic Leap to be raising at a time when it's expected to launch its products soon. There were certainly reports earlier this year that it would, would release those products by the end of this year. Uh, no sign of that just yet. And this new funding round suggests maybe it still is a while from actually generating any revenue to cover its costs and so on. Uh, but the fact that the raising was at a premium suggests that investors are at least pretty heartened by what they're seeing still excited about seeing that launch sometime in the near future. This still has the potential to create an interesting new category, a mainstream category within the overall AR VR spectrum where right now gaming-centric VR and smartphone-based AR are really the two main categories and we haven't seen sort of headset-based AR take off yet. HoloLens is really the only commercial product out there but it's so expensive and marginal that it really hasn't had much impact on the mainstream market. So that's the last of the nine items from the site today. Five other items to round up at the end here quickly. Um, Bloomberg had a story about Google and robotics and uh, basically said, and the headline on the story is Google has made a mess of robotics. And the thrust of the story is it acquired all these companies, didn't do much with them, and in the process kind of took a lot of really promising robotics companies and squashed them. Um, no coincidence, I'm sure, but X, the part of Google that runs this robotics effort, put out a blog post later in the day talking about all the clever stuff they're doing with robotics. So Google's certainly pushing back on this a little bit, but uh, interesting to read those two pieces. Uh, there's a press release from Piper Jaffray, big investment analyst firm, uh, which is based on a survey they do every few months among teens. Lots of interesting detail in there about uh, which apps they use, where they'd like to shop, what they spend their money on, uh, the fact that over 80% of them expect their next phone to be an iPhone, uh, whether that's true or wishful thinking. Uh, but lots of interesting detail in there. Uh, then uh, on a medium, Waymo has a post with its first safety report. This is really a very in-depth uh, pages and pages long report about how Waymo ensures safety for its self-driving cars. So lots of interesting detail in there. And then lastly, Bloomberg had a really interesting feature looking at the innards of each phone since the original iPhone uh, and up until the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. We don't know exactly what's inside the iPhone 10 yet because that hasn't been released. They've promised to add that in time. But it's a really interesting sort of perspective on iPhones and how they've developed over time. So as usual, links to those pieces and the ones I discussed earlier in the show notes. Apologies again for the mix-up with yesterday's episode. Uh, as I say, hopefully won't be any similar issues today. Have a great evening and we'll be back with one last episode for the week tomorrow. Bye-bye.